Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to September's Outside the Box. We're recording this a tiny bit early and I'm going to say that at the top because we might use the words this week and you might think, that was last week, you daft mess. It is this week. I'm, we're recording it this week. I'm going to edit it next week. I haven't got time. Joining me in this time fuck <laughs> that will be <laughs> explaining the words this week are Mickey Noonan. Somewhere in outer space, time. Yes. Hello. That was actually quite appropriate, Mick. And Jen Offord. Hannah, that was a lot of words. <laughs> I hadn't even planned. I just stumbled my way through. No, really? It, seems, it was seamless. <laughs> it was fluid. Largely because I haven't got a news section this week, apart from the obvious news, which is everybody in America is still on strike. What about the news that there is a season five of what we do in the shadows, but it's not in the UK? Yeah, it's been on HBO for, I think, since about July. June, July? Yeah. Yeah. This is rude. It's so rude. And even when it comes here, I think it comes to Disney first. Disney Plus, Which yeah. is okay, because I actually have Disney. Yeah, but, same. But uh, well done them, because I was actually planning on cancelling D- Disney when this series of Only Murders in the Building ended, and then going back to it when the new series started next year, because I really don't watch that much stuff on it. Mm. But the promise of what we do in the shadows will keep me there, I suppose. Where should we start? Mickey, I know you haven't watched a huge amount of television. Have you managed to watch some Winning Time? I've watched two episodes of Winning Time, and I know that's not as many episodes as there have been, but I have thoroughly enjoyed being back in Lakers world. I find I need to focus because it's quite packed, right? It's quite jam-packed. It moves quite fast, and I enjoy it. So when I'm really tired, it's not a good time for me to watch Winning Time 2. I need to be like, right, I'm awake enough that I can take all of this in. So yeah, hence why I've only watched two episodes. You have to actually look at the screen the whole time as well, because quite a lot of information pops up on the screen, just an arrow pointing and (laughs) saying, this guy, which is relevant to the plot, or this is the real him. I mean, I don't double screen when I watch telly, but I do have two cats, so I'm not always looking in the right direction. Season two, seven episodes this time. It's a shorter one. I don't know why. I have seen six episodes. Here we go. Welcome to the Weird Week. I've watched six episodes, which is as far as you can get. By the time people listen to this, it will be over. But I think I know enough about this series to draw a conclusion about it because I know it's not going to go off the rails because I know what actually happened, Mm. if that makes sense. They're not going to kill a a lead character. So it's the story of the Lakers in the 1980s. It's absolutely one of the best things on TV. It's fast. It's funny. It's action-packed. It's got some real balletic basketball being played. And it is needle-drop-tastic. So many series get it wrong when they just... I mean, for example, The Handmaid's Tale used to drive me mad where they'd just be like, here's June standing here, women's empowerment song. (laughs) Whereas this actually tends to be, here's some men doing basketball disco banger. It really works. You said the word history. It's interesting because the debate about accuracy rumbles on... The guys in charge, Adam McKay, HBO, they say the same thing every time. This is not a documentary. We do not sell it as a documentary. There's a thing at the back that says... Yeah, there's a disclaimer. It's not... I suppose the confusion isn't helped by the fact that in some instances, they replicate certain events almost exactly as they were, which sort of muddies. Just by way of an example... You won't have seen it yet, but this isn't... I'm going to try and do this spoiler-free-ish for you, Mickey. Thanks, Hannah. There's a real shit show of a press conference that they give that is replicated 
almost word for word. So I can understand why people think, oh, well, if that's spot on, maybe the other stuff is spot on. So is it a bit like The Crown in that respect? In that, like, it's taken real life things and it's sort of built a narrative around them? Or is it based on more knowledge of conversations that were actually had? Or, like, what what's the kind of balance? I think part of the issue is there's about four or five people who have written a book about this period. Mm. And they don't all agree right. on what happened. So I think partly it's taken one perspective or maybe two out of five perspectives. And therefore, you've got three other people saying that absolutely didn't happen. I think sometimes it's motivations are added on to people because it, it fits, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. You'll get events where people do certain things. Or they'll see certain events as part of a trail of their life, whereas that doesn't usually happen at the time. It usually happens in retrospect. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, that... that that's the whole point of retrospect and memory. We all remember, we could have totally different memories of something that all three of us were at. And they're all valid. And also they fuck with the time frame a bit. But I mean, it doesn't bother me because I know it's not supposed to be, I mean, whatever you want to call it, faction, fact and fiction, and a sort of push together. I mean, for example, there's a bit where they they trade Norm Nixon and the very next game he comes out playing for another team against them and he shits all over them. I don't know if that happened, but there's a poetic truth to the Mm. idea that this guy's been traded and he comes back and sort of takes his small revenge on them by being brilliant. Talking of Nixon, this is quite interesting. I want to mention him because it's about a dynasty, obviously, the, the start of the Lakers dynasty, which is like the bus family running it. But Devon Nixon, who is the actor there, actually is part of two dynasties himself. He's sort of the apex of two dynasties. The Nixon dynasty, he's actually playing his own dad in this, Norm Nixon. <laughs> and one of his brothers is a basketball player. And then towards the end of this series, we get to meet his mum, who... He plays his dad meeting his mum. It's all a bit strange, really. But yeah, his mum, who is the the actor Debbie Allen, who is, of course, the sister of, oh, I can't remember her name from The Cosby Show. So he's like already part of these two dynasties that come together with him playing his dad. So there's lots of stuff in there as well that might lead you to think, well, his dad must be happy with with how he's represented because otherwise, you know, (laughs) <laughs> he'd be really pissed off with his son for playing a really <laughs> weird version of him. Um, I, a couple of things I wanted to mention. So a new character, or character, arrives, person, arrives this series, Kurt Rambis. And there was a lot of talk about how, because people knew he was coming, obviously, because he arrives, about how famous long leg Nicholas Braun should play him from Succession. Mm-hmm. Cousin Greg, for anyone who doesn't know about how he should play him. And it's interesting because they're like, oh yeah, he's tall and he acts. And I think it kind of takes the credit away from from the actual fucking graft that these people are doing. Because Joel Allen, who is actually playing him, the minute he gets unleashed from the bench, Rabbis was all over the place. He's crashing into benches. He's at full stretch. It's so impressive how people are not just acting brilliantly because you get like Solomon Hughes, who was a basketball player, who turns out to be a great actor. You get great actors who turn out to be playing some beautiful basketball on this. Quincy Isaiah, who plays Magic Johnson, is wonderful. He's just so charismatic. It's so incredible. Just watch him smile for an hour, Hannah. Absolutely. Everybody's really good. Jason Segel, his character, 
is a really interesting case study in what happens, you know, when power perhaps goes to someone's head. You know, there's some great scenes in that. He is absolutely great. He, he basically discovers hair mousse and he never looks back. <laughs> I, I know this because this is at the very top mm. of the series. It sort of starts in 1984, then moves backwards. Mm. And he's just like, I, I, I've, my wife got me this thing. It's called moose. And I was like, moose. this is amazing. But absolutely, star of the show, the series. Adrian Brody is phenomenally good in this. He's great. By the end, when he's dressed in his wonderful suits and he has his slick back hair, just beautiful. Just owns it, looks beautiful, acting wonderfully. Excellent. I do have a couple of criticisms of this series. I'm not that interested in Jerry Buss's love life or the ongoing relationship between Magic Johnson and Cookie. Mm who then becomes his wife. Now, I understand why it's important, because she does go on to become his wife. But it is slow to watch. It's quite tedious. Both, you know, both of those character scenes, even though the payoff is worth it, I think too much time is spent on those relationships. Whereas there's hardly any Claire in this at all. Gabby Hoffman's Claire is almost invisible. And Jeannie only has one storyline and it revolves entirely around her dad. Now, it's possible to argue that Jeannie Buss did only have one storyline in her life and it revolved around her dad. But I could have done with more of the pair of them and them given more to do, to be honest. Because when basketball is such a male-heavy world... To sideline the only few female characters that you have, I think is a bit naughty. Yeah, agreed. Just FYI, in case anyone's interested, it's Felicia Rashad. That's we would have got there in a Mrs. Doyle. <laughs> just say every name until you got there eventually. Way I don't know we? that I'd have got to Felicia if I'm honest with you. No, Father Todd anxious. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, have you anything to add? Well, I've only watched the two episodes, so I think you've covered it beautifully. It's just a joy, though. I really, I really savour the time and even though it is so fast-paced i feel like the hour feels like an hour but i mean that in a very positive way not like when we're watching a film like lost in translation and if you haven't listened to the mo- well a couple of pod scenes ago spoiler felt interminable <laughs> and mm. this it doesn't fly though and i love that because i think it does so much and it crams so much story into its hour it feels like a good solid chunk of time spent in this incredible world yeah, there was an episode about, I think it was maybe about episode four or five, where I needed a wee and I thought, oh, I'm not going to pause this because this scene has the absolute makings of the final scene of an episode. Then another scene came on, I paused it, we're only like 35 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It feels long in the best possible uh-huh, way yeah. in that sense. Yeah, Absolutely. Because that's the quality of it. Almost every scene feels like a sort of scene that most people go, here's the big scene, EastEnders drum roll, on to next week. Whereas this is just peppered. In the episode where it sort of comes to a head between Adrian Brody and Jason Segel's characters, there's just some fucking wonderful just shouting. Quincy Isaiah and... And uh, John C. Riley have a really, really excellent argument where they are both just fantastic in it. And and it's it's really striking because actually, you know, in real life, they were they were really close. Mm-hmm. They are really close. <laughs> or, or until Jerry Buss died, they remained really, really close. So to see him ripping into his mentor is, is, is quite something to watch. But yeah, just in the middle of a series, just, just middle of an episode, middle of a series, 
like really high quality scenes like that. Yeah, if you're not already on board, get on the Dr. Jerry bus. Mm. It's astonishing. It's such good <laughs> telly. And actually, please do, because I think this is my biggest worry. Not enough viewers. There's not enough viewers. It hasn't been picked up for awards, despite the fact that, like I say, even even guys who are, when you barely know their names in it, are doing phenomenal work because they're playing fucking basketball as well as acting. Not enough nominations. So it is my worry. So please. Jen, what have you been watching? Oh, I've watched two things. Where do you want me to start? Um, start with that thing with Ruth Wilson in. Have you been watching that on the beach? Yes, I have. The Woman in the Wall. Reef Wilson, as you say, as Lorna Brady, a woman who we are invited to believe. Basically, they've done something weird here. They've set it in 2015. There must be a reason why they've done that, apart from the fact that Ruth Wilson just doesn't look like she's 50 years old. But anyway, uh, I was just like, I've been watching it with my mum and I've been like, she's the same age as me. We're supposed to believe that she's 50. She's not 50. She doesn't look 50. Why didn't they just get a 50-year-old to like play this part? Anyway... They've set in 2015. I'm sure there's a reason for that to do with history. I don't know what it is, but uh, whatever. So the plot is a little bit complicated to explain because there's a lot of threads coming together. But basically, uh, Detective Coleman Akande, played by Daryl McCormack, who was in the film with Emma Thompson, Here's to You, Leo Grande. I think he's in Bad Sisters. Yes, I believe he is also in that, yeah. He's in a play that I'm going to see. He's very good in this. With Brian Cox and Patricia Clarkson. Oh, wow. What, well, what be, a cast. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, so he is called to investigate the suspicious death of a priest in Dublin, one whom it transpires he knows, having spent some time in a children's home where said priest was oh, priest in. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. You love a police procedural, don't you, Jen? Bloody <laughs> priest love one. be priest in. Priest be priest in. Uh, I mean, we don't know exactly what has happened to him in the children's home, but we know... Nothing good. Bit surprised they didn't take him off the case at this point, but what do I know about policing? Anyway, (laughs) as part of the investigation, he's led to a small town, one which is grappling with its history and the Magdalene laundry that local girls were forced to attend. Local oddball, Lorna, played by Wilson, is one of those girls. Is the dark past of the Magdalene laundry somehow linked to Coleman's case? Is it the Magdalene Laundry in Dublin? No, the Magdalene Laundry is in this small town, which I don't really know where the small town is, but not that far from Dublin, basically. I think it's a fictional place, but again, I'm not entirely sure. Only Mickey and I have been to the one in Dublin. Yeah, it was the last one to close, wasn't it? In like 96 Mm. as well. Yeah, so this one, they're they're talking about things that happened in the mid-80s, which is how you know how old Ruth Wilson is supposed to be, basically. Mm -hmm. But also we discover that uh, as Coleman becomes kind of like a bit freaked out by everything that's going on he is actually it turns out he was born in a magdalene laundry again at this point i'm saying maybe you're not the best guy to be (laughs) running this case but i I, what what do i know about policing um i think so there's a whole other subplot about the woman and woman in the wall was not really a sub they all weave together in quite a, in a way that is quite confusing to explain and also i don't want to spoil it for people because it is on now and you can go and watch it all uh, well i don't know if you can watch it all but you can obviously go and watch it on iplayer if you've missed the first few episodes with four episodes in at the point of recording it's basically about yeah all of these people trying to unpick what's happened to these children basically that were born in the magdalene laundries and there's 
loads of stuff going on. I think it's really interesting because it is obviously it must be based on actual. We know the Magdalene laundries actually happened, but it must be based on stuff that actually went on. I would think it's really interesting. Ruth Wilson is brilliant in it, and I think that she portrays this the trauma of this woman. She portrays it really well. She's kind of like the local oddball, as I said. They've done something a bit weird with her voice. They've made her sound like a like a bit of a simpleton or something. And she's she's not a simpleton. She's deeply traumatised by what's happened to her in her life. But I think it's to sort of portray her as an oddball. I don't think they really need to do that. But I do think she's brilliant in it. I think Ruth Wilson is generally really good, to be honest. All of the acting in it is fantastic. It's kind of like a bit of a mystery in a way. It's a police procedural and it's also like quite a good way of introducing people who maybe don't know much about the Magdalene Laundries to the stuff Mm -hmm. that went on at the time because obviously this is like prime time BBC Sunday night. So yeah, I think think it's pretty good. I wonder if they've set it in 2015 because that's when it started to get talked about a lot more the Magdalene laundries like when was yeah. Philomena was that around that sort of time yeah it might earlier? be uh, I think I think Philomena's a bit older, a bit than, older that. than that one of the things they're doing in this is they're they're talking to a politician about like basically getting an apology for these women so mm. I wonder if it coincides yeah. with like a, a national yeah. apology or something like that um if anyone is interested Mick and I did a great interview with Dr Neve oh future Hannah is going to pop in here and say something and it's going to sound really edited. The name you're thinking of, Hannah, is Dr Maeve O'Rourke. Because it's interesting you say it's probably based on something. The answer Mm. is Jen, who knows? What went on in them is still very Mm. much a mystery in itself and women aren't allowed access to their own records and it is outrageous. It really is outrageous. I'm going to talk about something that sort of links into this, as in it's about the sad, sorry state of the history of being a woman. The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, which is on Amazon. It was either seven or eight episodes. I don't know. I kept watching it because I sort of wanted to know how it ended, but I can't say I was particularly enjoying it. That wouldn't be the right word. Set in Australia, based on a book by Holly Ringland. And it's about domestic violence, essentially. A young girl ends up living on a farm with her grandmother because something has gone very wrong, which I'm sure you can imagine what it is. I'm trying to do it reasonably spoiler-free. And it's about, yeah, the effect of domestic violence, not just in the immediate term, but in the long term and even throughout generations, Mm. all of which is laudable as hell. However, it's a flower farm that her grandmother lives on and it's based on a novel And so periodically things pop up, drawings of flowers. So obviously this happened in the book, but it just seems a bit more organic in a book, I would say. Yeah. Drawings of flowers with a little bit about strength, power, what this flower represents. And it's a strange mix between really fucking twee, to be honest, and also that sort of what I would call fake empowerment that I don't really buy into that I think a lot of Live, you know, love, love. the power <laughs> was was quite guilty of that that's so sort of like women yeah <laughs> Whoa, body farm. there's a, there's a lot of people that know the truth but they're keeping it to themselves for reasons best known to themselves 
everyone's keeping something from another character for a reason that I can never quite define why they don't just say, oh, you're interested to know what happened. Let me tell you what happened. So we have all these secrets and then it builds up and the secrets are revealed and nothing really happens. It doesn't come to a crescendo. It's just like people, women, they keep secrets, don't they? All of which makes you think, well, I'll start watching it, I'm sure. Because at the centre of it, there is a fucking amazing performance by Sigourney Weaver. Genuinely, really great performance. I realise it's important to talk about these issues. And I realise that I don't have control over other people's narratives. And people can talk about them however they want. It didn't really speak to me. However, she was magnificent in it. That's on Amazon. Should we have a break? All right. And and then we can talk about Matthew Broderick twice. Welcome back. Mickey, we're going to talk about a double Matthew Broderick. So you start with the Matthew Broderick that I don't know about, and then I'll come in with the Matthew Broderick that I do know about. Okay, Matthew Broderick, hashtag one. So yeah, if you subscribe to our mail out, which you should do, you'll have already heard, well, obviously read, some of my thoughts on Painkiller. I crammed the whole series of Netflix's docudrama, which is, I think it's either six or seven parts, in two days. (laughs) Just nom 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 nom. It's about the origins and aftermath of the very real opioid crisis in America and a cheery way to spend a weekend, eh? Well, yeah, it is a tale of doom, gloom and greed, but it is really well told and it has enough splashes of light, humour, slapstick comedy even, to heighten the shadows. Because, blimey, is Big Pharma a shadowy fucker? That is, of course, rhetorical. It, it really yeah. is. Yeah. In this particular story, Big Pharma is Purdue Pharma, owned by the Sacklers, who invented and relentlessly marketed from the late 90s onwards a new drug called OxyContin. Uzo Adeba is Edie Flowers. You probably remember Uzo Adeba most from Orange is the New Black, where she was Suzanne slash Crazy Eyes and phenomenal in that. In this, she is an investigator with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Virginia, which is home to plenty of the kind of rural, working class and economically deprived communities that were prime OxyContin targets. People, as Flowers puts it, in pain and with no option but to get better. And Flowers is angry, like really fucking angry, which is understandable in the circumstances and which is necessary in the circumstances. But I've got to say over seven episodes of just anger, 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 does start to feel a little one note for that character. Much more nuanced is Taylor Kitsch, who is utterly heartrending as farmer-made addict Glenn Krieger. He's injured at work and he's prescribed these magic painkillers that do, they get him back on his feet and then deep, deep into addiction, destroying his and his family's lives. Taylor Kitsch is a really interesting actor in as much as he is either brilliant, he's like Jack Houston, either brilliant, or dog shit. He only has two speeds. Uh, I don't think I've ever I've seen him in anything else. Because it's handsome, so I thought I would recognise you. since about 1998, to be honest. He played Tim Riggins, who is absolutely the best character in Friday Night Lights. Ah, okay. I haven't seen... I've seen like two episodes of Friday Night Lights. Okay. So, to the, the kind of making of this, Netflix has thrown a lot of filming, editing and narrative gimmicks at Painkiller... It's fast, it's flashy, it's got a banging soundtrack and then a few kind of music video type moments to go with it. And I've got to be honest, for me, that it got a bit much. It got a bit much that they kept just throwing all of these flashy editing tricks in it. But there is one tactic that packs an absolute emotional gut punch 
and that is at the start of every episode, people, actual people who have lost a loved one, often their child, to OxyContin, give a grief-stricken testimony about their family's loss. It's very short. They basically say what follows is a dramatisation of events, but what isn't fiction is that my son, daughter, became addicted and died. Mm. And it's really, really well done. Is it a gimmick? Yeah, of course it is. It's kind of a gimmick, but it is very, very powerful. And I expect we will see it in other stuff moving forward. Mm. Also, as promised, Matthew Broderick is in it. And he plays just plain evil money grubber Richard Sackler, who seems to not give any sort of shits about anyone apart from Richard Sackler and Richard Sackler's bank account. He does some dancing. He talks to someone who's not there. See my previous point about gimmicks? It's good, though. I think it's worth a watch. And it is quite a fast watch. And I think there are some really, really impressive performances in it. And I think the story is really important. Now, Disney Plus had a series called Dope Sick, Mm. which stars the brilliant Caitlin Deva and Michael Keaton and covered the same sort of ground in I have read a similar sort of style, if a bit more nuanced. I really wanted to watch it when I saw it advertised, but I didn't have Disney Plus at the time. I am still interested, particularly having now watched Painkiller. So if you have seen it, at me, at Mixed and Noonan, let me know if it's worth a look. Yeah, that's been on my list of things to watch for absolutely ages, and I just never got round to it. But, I mean, it's so fascinating. Um, it's And it's awful. It's awful, yeah. It's absolutely the the prime example of why the American healthcare system is deeply flawed because it's Mm. run for profit. So absolutely horrific. And I know a couple of people who've been addicted to painkillers. And, you know, it's really hidden. Lots of doctors, apparently, because, of course, they can access it. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of the sellers of OxyContin, like they employed, the Sackler family employed all of these basically pretty young women to go and sell it to doctors and get doctors to prescribe more to get doctors to prescribe higher doses and then they themselves are using it recreationally and you see the effect it has on them although they are less sympathetic characters oxycontin is it it's different to fentanyl is it yeah i mean fentanyl is is worse than oxycontin um Yeah. yeah it's the next stage that's not okay. to diminish what oxycontin is, but fentanyl oxycontin is... is basically heroin. Yeah, but wrapped uh, up and as a fentanyl. Is... Isn't that what Fe- fentanyl is? Fentanyl's morphine, so they're all from the same sort of right. They're opioids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really interesting, Mickey. It is really interesting. Totally different side of Matthew Broderick. I watched this week. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Hannah. There were similarities to the performance. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you. Only Murders in the Building, season three. There are 10 episodes. I've seen seven, which is as much as they are, but I refer you to my dazzling intro. There will be eight <laughs> by the time you hear this. It can all have gone off the rails. I don't think it will I have. I don't think so. Absolutely ram-packed with guest stars this series, some <laughs> of which are well-advertised, such as Paul Rudd and Meryl Streep, and some of which didn't even appear in the credits, and they built it up for you. Okay, spoilers. If anyone hasn't got as far, stop listening. But when both Matthew Broderick and Mel Brooks turned up this week, it was so delightful and so unexpected. Yeah. And I like the fact that neither of them have the sort of agent that pushed for them to be in the credits, because, Mm. you know, in the opening bits, because then that ruins the surprise for people. Let's start with Meryl Streep. You read the mail out, you'll have seen a great deal of Meryl Streep love. 
You can actually see Meryl Streep winning an Emmy, like a future Emmy. For sure. Just to sort of reverse back a little bit. This is about them investigating a murder. But actually, it's almost as much about Oliver putting on a musical. In fact, Oliver has become the main character this series, I think. I think the first series was largely about Mabel. It was Mabel's backstory that was the sort of the the driving point. Last series was mainly about Charles, which is Steve Martin. And this one, I think Oliver is at the front. And most of the action is actually set in his his beautiful flat. Mm. Oh my God, his apartment is just... Yeah, most of the action previously has been in Charles's flat. Um, That tended to be the sort of the central area. That's where the board was kept. That's where they hung out. Although quite a lot in Mabel's flat, but obviously it's not Mabel's flat anymore. Indeed. So I suppose if Oliver isn't your favourite character, then maybe you'd be disappointed with this series. But I bloody love it. But also, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Talking to Ruth Bratt on Twitter about what we'd actually prepare to cut off. You know, I'd literally cut off an arm to get a ticket to an actual Oliver Putnam production because I think it would be amazing. What I also like about this is that so many series, they get someone on board. You know, this is a really important person in my life or whatever, really central, and then they move on. Partly because it's brilliant and people still want to be involved and partly because it's set in, in the same apartment block. It means that characters have stayed. We still have Howard. We still have mm-hmm. Uma, the wonderfully miserable Uma. I, oh, she's amazing. This week she said, Charles asked her if she'd apologised and she said, me? Fuck no. What did I do? And I just thought, I it's want amazing. that as a gift. I just want that as a gift for the rest of my life. Just... I also liked, there are three type of people. People who are alive, people who are dead, and people who are dead to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's amazing. Also, Theo Demas turned up this week as well. So there is a familiarity to it. You think, you always think, oh, I wonder who, we haven't seen Nathan Lane yet, but we have seen Tina Fey. So, He's in prison, that's why. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they can't go and visit him in prison. Okay. And we haven't seen Amy Ryan. Who knows, she might come back. She's also in prison. Is she in the same prison as Nathan Lane? We don't know. I suppose the centre of this is that they've fallen out. That's the central driving point of this. They've actually mm. fallen out as a threesome. And I think that is because despite the fact that that they, it doesn't need to be grounded in the real world because it's so obviously not the real world. You know, when they've got like a director living in the attic, like uh, the Phantom of the Opera, it's not the real world. But at the same point, I suppose the one question that most people looking at them, were they real people, would say, what is Mabel getting out of this? You know, they were like lonely. That was what drew them together in the first place. They loved true crime and they were lonely. Now, whether those two are actually connected or <laughs> <laughs> who am I to say? But now, the question of why Mabel is still hanging out with them, I think this is attempting to answer that question. I think it's doing it quite well. Mm. Mick? Yeah. I don't really have very much more to add apart from it's a real joy. And when we were chatting about winning time, I said, you know, when I'm a bit tired, I, I can't fight. I want to have that focus. And actually, Only Murders in the Building is perfect, kind of really chilled out, slightly sleepy telly because it's... It's a really easy watch. And that's not to say it's not really clever and really funny and engaging because it is all of those things and lots, lots more. But it's just so comforting. It's just really comforting television, even though it's about murder. And I'm going to put murder in inverted commas because my little theory is that maybe this one was an accident. Interesting. Interesting. My brother had a theory which has been proved correct. 
this week. No spoilers, but you know, tell me off there. So yeah, watch Only Murders in the Building. It's on Disney. It's it, you got three series. You can just plow through it. You only probably do oh, that in a so month good. if you put your mind to it, and only have to pay once. Yes. Yeah. Could really power through. Although obviously there's a oh there's three weeks left. Yeah. Jen, what else has been on your plate? Was Matthew Broderick in it? No, sadly oh, not. Damn! Thought we were going to have three for three. Oh. So I've been watching Beef, which is a comedy drama on Netflix starring Ali Wong as a successful small business owner who is pretty stressed with uh, with her life and she's looking to sell up to a big chain, big home department store and like it cannot happen soon enough for her basically. And Stephen Yun as Danny Cho, a hapless local handyman struggling to keep his head above water. The pair meet by chance when they are involved in a road rage incident together. I have to say, as we were watching it, and there was you don't see who's in the other car, you just see Stephen Yun's character, and I was just like, it's going to be a woman. It's going to be a woman. Mm. It's going to be a woman. And then it, it's a woman. <laughs> it's Ali Wong. Does she have an almost unique style of driving, Jen? Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, I recognise myself. No, I was just like... It's clearly going to... I didn't know anything about this when I watched it. I was just like, this is clearly going to be a woman. That's going to be like the big like, oh, look, women are angry too. But anyway, uh, basically, they're both kind of like on the edge for very, very different reasons. Uh, And apparently they decide that this is exactly what they need in their lives right now. And so the incident escalates into a full-blown feud that involves things like pissing on people's bathroom floors and vandalising cars, etc, etc. I think it probably says something quite interesting about the the human condition, the stresses of modern life, maybe even social media, that push. But it's it's very funny. I've only seen two episodes. I can't say loads about it at this point, but I am enjoying it and I will continue to watch it for sure sure where is it did you say that it is set in california no i meant where can people watch it oh where yeah i did say sorry it's netflix oh okay i'm sorry i really love the Mm. phrase beef because beef Mm. encompasses so much it can be so very very petty or it can be actual like almost a war right (laughs) it's great it's good i think i think you like it has anybody else watched anything else they would like to mention I want to just do this on air so it's out of my system, potentially out of my system. Who knows? I might be angry about this forever. But I just got into And Just Like That. And while it came with all of the caveats as previously discussed on this very podcast, it had started to feel sort of familiar, which is a big ask because it took a series and a half of something new. And I had done some laughing, some of it out loud, and it felt quite Sex in the City. And then the ending made me want to headbutt myself to death. It was just so gobsmackingly awful and so male. And this series is supposed to be about women living their best lives. That's the whole point. Oh, my goodness. I am clearly very, very angry. I might never not be angry about it. Jen? Oh, I hate... I mean, I hated the whole series, but I hated... I was just like, five years? What? So Aidan and Carrie get together, and I actually... Back together. And it's actually dealt with quite sweetly. You don't really know why. It is almost just like they're familiar. They've never forgotten about each other. They get back together. Aidan's got kids. He's got three kids, the youngest of which is 14. The youngest isn't keen on his dad being anywhere apart from with him. And so there's like a tension that goes on. Carrie's trying really hard. She's bought a new place, blah, blah, blah. The youngest then takes some mushrooms, gets in Aiden's car and has a car crash. Aiden's 
devastated and goes to be with his kid, obviously, and is like, right, I need to stay put where I am in Virginia for a while. I think it's Virginia. And then he comes to see Carrie and he says, I've got to be with Wyatt. I have to be with Wyatt. And she's like, gosh, of course, of course. Because actually, Carrie is a much nicer woman than she's ever, ever been before. She says, oh my God, does this mean we're over? And he goes, no, no, absolutely not. I just need you to wait a while. And he wants her to wait until his kid is 20. What? Five years, Hannah. Five years. And she goes, that's six years. And he goes, he's 15 next week. So she goes, all right. But but also, until oh he's 20. What a random selection of an age. Why? He has know, to be out of his teenage years is the justification he gives. Because we all know that as soon as you hit 20, everything's fine after that. Like Yeah. Well, exactly. No so he could be 18 and living in a house, maybe with a child of his own. But his dad's... St- yeah. Wowzers. Yep. I did have a question. I saw a little bit on Twitter about the fabled return of Samantha. Oh, no, uh, don't, don't, don't. It's, oh. I saw a clip where she's in, like, the back of a car, you know, yeah. so obviously... With they terrible green screen. Yeah, they do, obviously <laughs> they don't have to be in the same scene together um, because they hate each other, even I, even I know. Well, they're not in the same country. Yeah, she filmed it without doing any lines with anyone else and without meeting the showrunner. I'd like to show him my lower Manhattan. Um, <laughs> actual, or one of my favourites, Dirty Martini, Dirty Bastard. Um, <laughs> love that one. Anyway, uh, so she's like a key part of the original and obviously she's decided she's not coming back. Apparently they don't get on and also I think she was just like, you're not paying me, like you've made her the star and now she gets all the money and we're not getting a fair, I think is like the the kind of thrust of it, which is like, fair enough, really. Say thrust like Samantha would say it. Thrust. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> I found that scene to be so horribly cynical. I hated it. I really hated it because you know they've just gone, look, people want you in it please what like what can we pay you what can we give you how can we make you do this and you know she's just been paid the most like repugnant amount of money ever and she's like fuck it yeah why not and like see i found that scene so horribly cynical that i fucking loved it (laughs) when the other way i was like this is hilarious because it's also terrible it is awful. like she is faxing it in awful (laughs) then they like do a fucking callback to that terrible scene with jerry halliwell yeah oh what else are you supposed to do on a lovely sunny day go to some go to soho house and go to the pool it made me die inside okay i have a question all of that just said you are yeah. totally going to watch the third series, yeah. though, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I am. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I will watch everything they ever make without question. No, not without question, because I will question myself, why are you putting yourself through this? But I will do it, because I'm in an abusive relationship with Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> <laughs> what a place to end. I reckon Michael Patrick King is who we're yeah, in probably. an abusive relationship with. That's probably fairer. Yeah. We are missing the opportunity to just say Matthew Broderick's name one last time here. You know? Yes. Oh, of course. Of course yeah. yeah. It was nice to see that her husband's also got some work. Good on you, pal. Good <laughs> on you. Well done, Matthew Broderick. Outside the box. 